1: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get
2: your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
3: Today, the Starship Sofa is brought to you by Audible.com. To receive your free audio book, Go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa, sign up, and that free audiobook is yours. More about Audible later on in the show. So hello and welcome to Oral Delights on a Wednesday night. This is the Starship Sofa. And can I just start by saying how humbled I feel for all the emails and kind wishes, really, about the saddest show. Do you know what I mean? I did not think it was as popular as that. You know, I have had an avalanche of emails and so much as well as being kind of kind guidance, offer of help, offer of like guidance with the, you know, change the show a little bit format, help with the kind of, the the working out of it. It has just been immense. So now I'm left with, (laughs) how do I go? I'm still no further forward, but it's a lot, a lot of people have been mentioning, maybe do the Saturday show every other week, kind of free up time to do this one as well. So we will see, but, Again, thank you just so much for all the kind emails and messages on the forum. Quite humbled and quite touched. Thank you. So, delving straight in with the oral delights, we have a poem for you, as usual.
2: Time travel Verb Tenses by Laurel Winter You remind me of yourself at an age you haven't reached yet, a time when you're comfortably old, when you've cultivated fine wrinkles and some softening pounds. You remind me of the person you're going to be someday, quieter hair and spottier skin, and a sense of how much you matter to the functioning of the universe, which is, of course, for all of us, not very much. You remind me of the person I fell in love with last week. I'm going to fall in love with 37 years from now. You remind me that it's dangerous to go back and meet someone you love before you met them because you remind me too much of yourself.
3: There you go. Thank you, Laura Winter, for that poem. Don't forget, copyright is Laura Winters. And Diane Severson. Diane just been away to America, flitting all around. And I got a little Skype chat with her just before... She tootled herself off the bed one night. That she's all over. You must be the person to invite to weddings. <laughs> Our flash fiction tonight comes from Mr. John Kessel. Don't forget, John Kessel has a collection of short stories out from the last 10 years of his writing, including his Tiptree award winner Stories for Men. Links on the site to that.
1: Downtown by John Kessel So at the end of the week I shut down my left brain, got charged and told anyone who would listen that I was going downtown. And who is it that's supposed to care? The group average said. Certainly not you, I said, pulling on my weekend skin. GA and I used to be featured, and they still held it against me. What are you going to do down there? The duck asked. The duck was puny and naive. "'Tell me something I ain't gonna do,' I shot back. "'Well, that seemed to intrigue the duck. "'Can I come too?' "'It's a free domain,' I said, "'long as you got your own charge.' We left the group in the locker space and walked out of there. The sun was dying, and on the horizon the murder trees were stirred by the offshore breeze. We walked up to the transit stop, plugged in, bought a couple of passages and stood on the platform in the sultry evening." waiting for the slip. Far down the slipway glowed the lights of the city. Will there be boys and girls there? The duck asked. You bet your feathers, I replied. Ducks too. When the slip drew up, we settled in, and before we knew it, we were stepping out into the colourful Calais Rosinante. Boys, girls, snakes, Metatron the Archangel, available for 23 amps, ducks. Hot jazz filled my right brain, singing Go, Go, along with the Four Noble Truths. Life sucks. It sucks because you're stuck on things. This can be remedied. Fake left, fake right, go up the middle. Just like downtown, to kill your buzz while pushing it. Stuck on things. I wasn't going to be stuck on anything tonight longer than it took me to drink it or smoke it or poke it. Remedy me no remedies, Chaz. First, food. We got some food. A cosmic boy accosted us in front of the cheese stront. You're outliers, right? For a very reasonable price, I can provide an interstellar experience. How much? the duck asked. Before Cosmic could answer, I put the bigger of my two hands, my pushing hand, on his chest. I pushed. We aren't interested, Chaz. My friend may look like a duck, but he wasn't fledged yesterday. Cosmic sauntered off. Why did you chase him away? the duck asked. My right brain informed me that I regretted saying the duck could come. Thanks, right brain. Look, duck, let's split up. I'll meet you back here at daybreak and a half. His display feathers drooped, but he didn't protest. So I had me a night and a day and a night. Various transactions were made, physical and physiological. Fluids were transferred. Charges were discharged. Frankly, I I don't remember most of it. What I do remember is waking in an alley between a tavern and a frothel. The duck was leaning over me. He'd lost most of his feathers. His downy cheeks made him look like a girl. Holy calamity, he was a girl. Duck, I said groggily. The one and only, she replied. She levered herself under my arm and helped me to stand. My weekend skin was ruined, my right brain whirled. Come on, Schmee, she said. Time to slip home. I can't slip, I croaked. I'm completely discharged. I'll loan you. We limped through the street. Downtown was just as bright and attractive as it had been when we arrived, in a completely meretricious sort of way. Meretricious. That was my left brain coming back. We stood on the platform waiting for the slip. Ahead, another week in the reality mines. Life sucks, I muttered. This can be remedied, the duck said. To my complete and utter surprise, she kissed me sweetly on the cheek. She is really quite attractive, for a duck
3: and again don't forget copyright is mr john kessels john thank you very much for that story no doubt i will be dropping you an email to try and sneak some more stories our way narration for that story is by my good friend mr grant stone grant amazing job thank you very much sir so today, Starship Sofa is brought to you by Audible.com. And Audible.com, don't forget, they do other books apart from science fiction. The very first book I got, just out of curiosity, from Audible was Bill Bryson's A Short History of Everything. And maybe that's why I am kind of really enjoying these fact articles. That was just amazing. Do you know what I mean? I was just kind of... Hooked from, and I think that was, you're talking, 18 hours, you know? I think that's the beauty with Audible. You can kind of just, with that free book, you can kind of just sample. You know, it doesn't have to be science fiction, but don't get us wrong. Audible are setting strides with their Audible frontiers. You know, they've got some cracking books coming out there as well. But it's not just all about science fiction, do you know what I mean? It's like, if you want to kind of experiment and try something else, you've got that chance so please do pop over to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa, sign up, you get to pick a free audio book and it's yours, that's it, yours for good, even if you cancel. There is some more great stuff coming from audible.com, they have Kirk Vonnegut's Sirens of Titans coming soon and Rogers Laney's Lord of Light, so there you go, some great books on the offering. So next we come on to the little bit of kind of sciencey fact things. And actually, what's quite unusual about this is I haven't really got many of these articles kind of in kind of the back storage. You know, they're just kind of someone drops us a line and it, it comes or I get Amy's or I get Peter Watts. I didn't know our good friend, Mr. Jim Campanella, who is you know struggling with the kind of the get the uppie middle of the night newborn baby syndrome. Mr. Jim Campanella, I knew he was a kind of a teacher, but I did not know he taught like this. So, this is the first, hopefully the first of many by Jim. I dropped him an email saying, Jim, don't stop now. See, if I had teachers, like all these people that are doing these fact articles for me, I'm sure I would have been a bright little penny. But no, I didn't. I just had stuffy old people that weren't even interested in teaching what they were teaching anyways. So... Jim is Associate Professor at the Department of Biology and Molecular Biology, Montclair State University. He has a PhD in Molecular Biology from the Case Western Reserve University. Jim actually sent his CV and I just didn't read it all, Jim, to be quite honest. There was so much education there. I was like, that's not real. That lad wants help. So listen to this, and just sit back and enjoy it. I certainly did. Fantastic.
4: Remember Jurassic Park? Of course. Who could forget the book or the movie? Uh, Now, more than 15 years old at this point. Giant Tyrannosaurs terrorizing gargantuan brontosauruses, marching stegosauruses, raptors. Although both the book and movie were not very accurate from a scientific perspective. More on that in just a second. There was one thing that both got absolutely right. One of the long-standing desires of biologists is to bring back species long dead and lost. I'm sure it's kind of obvious, but most biologists are appalled with extinction. Just as a matter of principle, we hate to lose anything that can help us better understand the world and our place in it. Ignore all the Jurassic Park stuff for just a second, and imagine if we had a live trilobite from the Cambrian period... What that could tell us about arthropod evolution and physiology, or uh, a megatherian, Uh, that's a giant ground sloth. From the Pliocene. besides being an amazing thing to see, again, it would tell us boatloads about the genetics and evolution of mammals. I mean, I could go on and on and on about all the different species that would be great to bring back. I mean, biologists love long-dead species because we regard them like those people who love romantic novels. Uh, They imagine a world in which they find the perfect love, right? Oh, how wonderful and rich life would be if only I had this. Well, what am I getting at? In the last few months, some major strides have been taken to help bring back some of our long-lost evolutionary partners from this planet Earth. And no, I'm not talking about Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park approach. If you remember from both the novel and the movie, the dinosaurs were brought back to life by the method of getting their ancient genomes out intact from the guts of ancient mosquitoes caught in amber. The insects had fed heartily upon the blood of the big lizards, and the DNA was still present in their digestive tracts for the picking. Once Crichton's professor retrieved the DNA, all he needed to do was clone it and ta-da! There were his little baby dinosaurs, all ready to grow up into massive creatures. Well, that's lovely, that's fantastic, but it won't work. I mean, there are two major problems from a practical standpoint. First, the actual amount of DNA that you can extract would be vanishingly small, and you would even have trouble amplifying it enzymatically which is one of the common ways that we take DNA now and and just make more of it. Uh, I mean, you, you, you have to have some idea of its sequence in order to actually copy it and amplify it. So you'd be really limited what you could work with. Second, even if you could get enough DNA, it would very likely be degraded and unusable. Worse, if the DNA was in pieces... Then one piece of DNA from a Stegosaurus would be pretty much indistinguishable from that of a Triceratops. I mean, there's there's unless you knew the sequences of of both the Stegosaurus and the Triceratops, you'd have one hell of a time distinguishing them and telling them apart. And basically, you would have a mess, no matter how long you worked at it, because of all the technical difficulties that that type of research engenders. It's pretty much been abandoned as as kind of a, a research method. Scientists are looking in another direction entirely at this point. So, scientists collaborating from the University of Melbourne in Australia and the University of Texas in Houston, they extracted DNA from 100 year old ethanol preserved specimens of the extinct Tasmanian tiger. The Tasmanian tiger, the thylacine, was the last of the big marsupial predators in the southern hemisphere. Well, any hemisphere. There have certainly been others in the last 20,000 years, including the bigger and probably meaner marsupial lion, but the poor Tasmanian tiger was the last. In a book published in 2000 by Robert Paddle, the name of the book was The Last Tasmanian Tiger, The History and Extinction of the Thylacine. He recounts in dark, and actually rather fascinating detail, the conflict between Tasmania's European settlers and the Thylacine they drove into extinction. The poor tiger was hunted by the settlers after it was accused of predating livestock. Uh, Back a hundred years ago, there was little evidence to support that the misnamed tiger was killing the sheep, and there's still very little to support that belief. It was much easier to point to the thylacine than the convicts who were employed by the sheepherders, or the numerous domestic dogs, or even just plain employee theft. So, the slaughter began to protect livestock. It was not until the 10th of July 1936 that the thylacine became wholly protected from being butchered. At that time, however, the last known thylacine was in the Hobart Zoo. It died shortly thereafter. As a Paddle points out in his book, The species was totally protected for the last 59 days of its existence. The last thylacine, named Benjamin, died so misunderstood that until Paddle's book, most of the scientific public didn't even realize that he was a she, a mature but still relatively young adult female. This story qualifies as one of the saddest from our recent ecological history, and it shows what lousy stewards we are of nature. Uh, Not to be a misanthrope, but most of recorded time, humans have not known what in the hell they are doing ecologically. Anyway, I'm not sure we're doing any better now. As you can see, the Tasmanian tiger is certainly a fascinating species to choose to work on, but simple extraction of DNA is not that impressive an achievement. High school students do that now. In fact, the actual process of DNA extraction itself has now become entirely prosaic. How prosaic? Well, nowadays there's a jewelry kit commonly available that high schools can buy in the States. I know, you're saying... Uh, Jim, you were just talking about DNA. Where does jewelry come into this? Well, the jewelry kit includes all the reagents needed for the students to extract their own DNA from their cheek cells, seal the DNA into a small glass globe with a cord, and presumably wear it around their necks for their admiring peers to stare at. I have always found this rather an odd fashion choice, by the way, but, uh what the hey, I'm an academic and what do I know about fashion? Perhaps the hope is that the DNA can act as an off-site backup in their jewelry box in case they ever need to be cloned. At any rate, getting back to my point, no, it is not amazing to extract DNA nowadays. What is amazing is what DNA the researchers chose to isolate and what they did with it. Now, cloning genes from Neanderthals and even woolly mammoths is not news. Uh, because millennia-old frozen tissues have been discovered, I mean, that work was done a long time ago. And the genes isolated from those ancients have been induced in vitro in bacteria to express those ancient proteins. Again, it's very cool, and ancient proteins are lovely, but they're not necessarily the road to bringing back dead species. Now, the work of Andrew pask Richard Berenger and Marilyn Renfrey goes in a slightly different direction. They isolated not a gene, but a genetic regulatory element called an enhancer from the tiger's genome. Just as a review, if you don't know, uh, genes code for proteins. But in addition to having sequences scattered throughout our genomes that actually code for proteins, you have to have regulatory sequences Controlling when those genes are turned on and off during development or even when you're all grown up. Enhancers are genetic sequences that have the ability to turn up the activity of genes by acting as a kind of landing pad for special activator proteins. PASC and the others took the sequence and created a transgenic mouse to carry it. Transgenic means that they took the gene from, or the sequence, DNA sequence from one species and placed it into another. So they created this transgenic mouse along with a marker that could be tracked to see if the controlling sequence turned anything on. And it did. The enhancer turned on the marker in the cartilage-producing cells of the mouse, just as it would have done in the long-dead tiger. This is actually the very first example of the restoration to activity of extinct non-coding DNA, and this group is the first to examine its function in vivo. That may not seem like very much, or it may just seem like gobbledygook to you, and it it may never bring back the tigers, but the goal is much greater than getting a small piece of regulatory DNA to turn on and off. The goal is to employ ancient DNA to alter today's animals into developing into cognates of their ancient ancestors, and also to better understand an entire system of genetics that's hidden away in almost every organism alive. No. No. You may not be able to get a Tyrannosaurus back, but imagine being able to take a chicken, which is descended from the dinosaur, and inducing ancient genetic elements to turn on and make the chicken look like a dinosaur. Or for that matter, imagine inducing an elephant to look like a woolly mammoth. There are genes called cryptic genes present in all our genomes that are part of our evolutionary heritage. Cryptic genes are called cryptic, because they're phenotypically silent DNA sequences, not normally expressed during the life cycle of an individual. In other words, these genes are present in the genome of the organism, but they may be turned on for only a short time during development, or not at all in the grown animal. However, they're powerful. During human development, for example, cryptic genes, which again reflect our evolutionary heritage, are turned on for short times as part of the growth process. There are two excellent examples. Humans have both tails and gill-like structures for a period during our gestation. Theoretically, if you could get those genes turned on at the correct time and keep them on, you could get a chicken to grow teeth or a human to grow a tail permanently. And then the chicken thing, by the way, is not just my wild imagination. In 2006, in the journal Current Biology... There was a report by a University of Wisconsin research group of induction of crocodilian tooth growth in chick embryos. That's what they mean by hen's teeth. And they're not so rare. You can compare cryptic genes to having computer programs hidden away in a system that can only be turned on with the correct tricky keystrokes. Well, regulatory sequences like those taken from the Tasmanian tiger are the keystrokes. They can not only turn on genes that have not been turned on in millennia they can turn on genes that are already active and just turn them on at the right time in development to give you something that looks very different so some would argue well that's not a woolly mammoth that's just a hairy elephant you have not brought back the mammoth at all and i would probably not argue with those people but still the really cool thing here is is that we can contemplate it all doing this. I don't know about you guys, but I am all set to see a zoo filled with re-engineered animals that look like their ancestors. Well, one thing, we may want to be careful with turning on cryptic genes in ostriches or other large birds. We don't want to find out that their ancestors looked anything like Jurassic Park's raptors. At any rate, thanks for listening. Take care, and I hope I've inspired some of you, or at least made you think... Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
3: There you go. Jim, that was just brilliant. Do you know what I mean? If I, honestly, if I was taught by people like yourself, I I could have, I could have, what could I do? I could have went on to anything. Dreams were possibilities. So we come on to the main event of the night in Oral Delights. Short story by Alan Steele. Alan Steele's latest novel, Galaxy Blues, came out in April as an Ace hardcover and is set in the universe of his Coyote series. His next novel, Coyote Horizon, will be coming out in April 2009, also from Ace. And he has a new website, nice flash new website, coyoteseries.com. That's actually dedicated to the Coyote novels and the spin-offs. So, please, have a check of that. Have a listen to this story.
5: The Last Science Fiction Writer by Alan Steele He sits at his desk writing a story. His fingers tap at the computer keyboard, making a sound like rain falling on plastic as his eyes follow the words that gradually flow from left to right across the screen. He pauses to pick up a glass of iced tea from a coaster. A quick sip, then his hands return to the keyboard. A cigarette smolders in an ashtray, but more often than not it burns down to the filter without him taking more than a few drags. His mind is completely focused as ideas are transformed into thoughts, thoughts into words, words into sentences, sentences into paragraphs. His office is a spare upstairs bedroom. The window is half open, allowing the cool breeze of a late September afternoon to drift into the room. Fading sunlight rests upon the distant hills, "'bringing out the crimson and burnt-orange hues of the autumn leaves. "'The crickets are already beginning to chirp, "'a soft sound that subconsciously relaxes him. "'From the house next door an abrupt mechanical roar, "'his neighbor starting up his riding-mower, "'getting set to do a little yard work before evening sets in. "'Distracted, he mutters beneath his breath, As he peers more intently at the screen. Yet he doesn't notice when the noise of the lawnmower abruptly ceases, replaced once more by the quiet chitter of the crickets. The cigarette has burned out. When he reaches for it, though, he finds a fresh one resting in the ashtray, its tip already glowing. He wonders about this for a moment. Did he light another one and forget about it? but that thought vanishes almost as soon as it occurs to him. He takes a drag, puts it back in the ashtray, and goes back to work. His glass remains perpetually three-quarters full. Whenever he picks it up, he finds that it still contains as much iced tea as it did the last time he took a drink. Yet this miracle bothers him for less than a second. Paragraphs become scenes. Scenes gradually take shape and form of a story. He writes for hours upon end, the pages slowly scrolling upward upon his screen. And yet he feels no exhaustion, no need to rest. He's married, but his wife never enters the room. He has two dogs, but they're nowhere to be seen or heard friends don't drop by unexpectedly. The phone next to his desk is silent. He never feels an impulse to push back his chair, stand up to stretch his legs, take a deep breath, maybe go to the bathroom. The view through his window remains the same, the character of the autumn light unchanging. The world is locked in an eternal golden afternoon. He takes another drag from his cigarette, drinks some more tea, and brings himself back to where he'd left off just a few seconds ago. At long last, he reaches the end of the story. He types the last few lines, then enters the command that will save the text in computer memory. Another keystroke will send the story to the printer. But that isn't necessary. A hard copy has already appeared in its tray. A large manila envelope, addressed to the editor of a science fiction magazine in New York, has materialized upon the desk. He removes the story from the printer tray, shuffles the pages to make them a tidy sheaf of paper, he attaches a butterfly clip, then pushes it into the envelope. He lays it upon his desk and doesn't notice that it vanishes as soon as he looks away. He gazes at the blank screen of his computer for a few moments, feeling a sense of satisfaction at having accomplished his task. A curly cue of smoke from his cigarette lingers in stasis above the ashtray, the autumn breeze no longer wafts through the window, and the crickets have ceased to chirp.
2: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
5: Self has come to a stop. He sighs, reaches over to pick up his iced tea. He takes a sip, puts down his glass, then picks up his cigarette. A quick drag... Then his hands return to the keyboard. Enough procrastination. Time to begin work on a new project. He sits at his desk, writing a story. What the hell is this? I don't know. My team has checked the entire system. No deterioration in the mnemonic download. Alpha wave levels remains nominal. Sensory input fully engaged same for cerebral feedback loop. You want feedback? Here's your feedback. Read the end of the story you just got from him. Here, the bottom of the transcript. Wait a sec, let me pull it up. What's your name? she asked. Adam, he replied. What's yours? Eve. Uh Uh-huh, and now the end of the one before that. Um, okay. Here it is and then he woke up and discovered that it was all a dream. Yeah, okay, and now the first one. Hold on. Yeah, here it is. Oh, my God, it's a cookbook. And you don't see anything wrong with this. Well, they do seem a little predictable, except maybe that last one. Didn't see that coming. You didn't see... Come on! This stuff was lame even back. I thought you told me this guy was a major author.' "'Well, he was. According to Research Division, he published fifteen novels and nearly a hundred short stories during his lifetime. He also earned several awards. What the hell is a Hugo, anyway? His work translated in half a dozen languages, yada, yada. I read the same report. "'My name's Adam.' What's yours? Crap! If he was that good, he could have written better than this in his sleep. Well, in a sense, he has been asleep. He's been dead! Just before he kicked off, he spent everything he had in the bank, even sold his house, so that he could arrange for his body to be cryogenically preserved. Thought there was a chance that he might be revived sometime in the future. "'Pure pre-collapse nonsense. Yes, well, he was a science fiction writer, after all. They tended to think about things like that. Science fiction! Sheesh! No wonder that stuff died out. Those guys never got anything right. And you say he's the last one? The only one whose brain survived cryogenic freezing. There were a couple of others—' But, yeah, yeah, I know. Too much collateral damage to the neural infrastructure. We're lucky to have been able to download just this guy. And you say there's been no deterioration of his long-term memory. Well... Well, what? Look, this isn't an exact process. Besides cellular damage, there's also the psychological trauma of death itself so even though we were able to reconstruct his neural pathways enough to allow a complete brain scan, we still had to edit his core engrams once we downloaded them. Otherwise, he'd have gone into solipsistic syndrome. You don't want them knowing they're really just a few hundred terabytes in a... Yeah, right. I got that. But just listen, all right? Once we piece together a partial memory of his life before he died... We used it to develop a template simulacrum of his contemporary environment. He resides in that now. For him, it's real. He feels, he hears, he tastes, the works. And we can manipulate that environment at will. Okay, I understand that. What I don't understand is why this guy is turning out crap. We can't figure that either. Remember, this is the first time we've attempted to devise a creative modus. However, we have a theory that residual memes may be causing a chaotic influence. If that's the case, then— Look, this is all over my head. And frankly, I don't care. Bottom line is that I've got Entertainment Division breathing down my neck. I told them they could have a new story from a major pre-collapse writer— And now they're making deals all over the place. The revenue they're expecting from net rights alone. That's your problem. Uh Uh-uh. It's your problem. Because if I don't deliver, I'm telling them why. And then you and your team will be lucky if your next job is down in astronautics, humping code for the Jovian run. Get my meaning? Yeah, okay. We'll work on it. Maybe if we change the simulacrum. Whatever. I got a meeting in ten minutes. Get it done, and let me know when you've got something besides this Adam and Eve crap. Sure. Oh, and by the way, you were wondering what a Hugo was? Here's a visual image we've recovered from his memory. Oh, no. No, that's just not right. Thanks a bunch. Just the sort of thing I need to take with me all day. It's supposed to be a rocket. Why, what else did you think it was? Never mind. He sits at an autograph table, signing books. The table is located in the midst of the largest, most luxurious bookstore he's ever seen. Aisle upon aisle of mahogany bookcases, each so tall that step-ladders are provided so that patrons may reach the volumes on the topmost shelves. Tiers of balconies, one above the other, rise toward a vaulted ceiling from which crystal chandeliers are suspended. Wrought iron elevators, operated by young men in bellboy uniforms, carry customers to the upper floors. Classical music, the first movement of Vivaldi's Four Seasons, drifts down to him from the chamber quartet performing on the second level, while waiters in tuxedos roam the aisles offering mimosa and swiss chocolates to readers lounging in soft leather armchairs this place is a cathedral of literature and he is its most precious icon on the other side of the table hundreds of men and women patiently wait their turn to meet him the line they've formed stretches as far as the eye can see the gentlemen are handsome the ladies achingly beautiful. Of high social stature and impeccable taste, they've dressed for the occasion, in dinner jackets and silk evening gowns, and each carries a copy of his latest novel as if it's their most precious possession. The chair in which he sits is a throne, high-backed and upholstered in red velvet. The table is made of ancient oak. Fine-grained and hundreds of years old, its surface so polished it practically gleams with a light of its own. A champagne stem rests upon it just in case he needs a little light refreshment. Next to his right hand is an onyx fountain pen, its tip and band fashioned from white gold. He picks it up, then raises his eyes to the next person in line. The woman is spectacular. Raven-haired, her figure svelte and sensuous, she could easily be a lingerie model, an actress of stage and screen, perhaps the consort of a European prince. Her dark eyes express longing as she shyly steps forward. There is no doubt that he is her favorite author." and that she would gladly indulge his fantasies if the opportunity became available. Perhaps a quiet dinner for two once the signing is over? For now, though, all she desires is his inscription, if he would be so kind. Of course, anything for one of his fans. She gently places the book upon the table, and then he looks down at it. A paperback, its pages dog eared, its spine broken. The cover art, rendered in bright primary colors, features a buxom, red haired woman in a skin tight spacesuit, her enormous breasts protruding against its silver fabric. Her face is contorted in an expression of homicidal rage, and she has a laser rifle in her left hand and a glowing energy sword in her right. She stands on top of a pile of corpses, blasting and slicing away at the horde of bug-eyed monsters swarming toward her. Behind her, a squad of space marines fires in all directions at once. In the background, a starship that seems to be concocted from pieces of old Star Wars model kits. The book's title is nearly an inch tall, raised in gold foil. Guts and Glory, a Glory Gaddington novel. Turning the book over, he skims the rear dust jacket copy. Glory Gaddington, captain of the starship Invincible and rightful heiress to the throne of the deposed Lord Montebom, continues her heroic quest to regain control of the Bagel System from Count Drock and the evil Rigelian Empire. The latest volume of a series, the last installment. Glory, glory, hallelujah, earned high praise from Locus. Interesting. He lays the book down, looks up at the woman waiting for him to sign it. I'm sorry, he says, but I didn't write this. She smiles and favors him with a knowing wink. Does it really matter, she replies. What the hell is this? Ah, uh, well... We're not sure. You're not sure? I've checked his bibliography, and there's nothing in there about, what's-her-name, Chastity Coming Soon. Glory Gaddington, a popular character of early twenty-first-century space opera, featured in a series of novels by—but he didn't write them, did he? So what's she doing in his simulacrum? And come to think of it, what were you trying to accomplish by this, anyway?' According to research, although he achieved a certain level of success, like most science fiction writers, he was relatively obscure in his day. His books sold just well enough for his publishers to earn a modest profit, but outside the genre, he was virtually unknown. So we thought that if we placed him in an environment in which he perceived himself as being a best selling author, respected at the highest levels of literary society, that might prompt him to produce something that would match up to those expectations. So where did Patience Paddingwell come from? Well, those books were bestsellers, after all, so perhaps his subconscious mind told him that was what he would have had to have written in order to get that sort of notoriety. At least, that's our theory. Some theory. All he's done since then is sit in his office, staring at his computer and mumbling to himself. Not true. We did get three pages of Glory, having sex with Count Drock. Yeah, right. That's gonna play in New Kansas. All he did was throw back the very thing that he thought would have made him a best-selling writer in his own time. Maybe it was. If we wanted that, We just reprint faith-frothing-hard novels. You couldn't, even if you wanted to. During the collapse, many science-fiction fans were forced to burn parts of their collections. Glory Gannington books were usually the first to go. They were rather thick, after all, so they provided a lot of heat. Fascinating. Look, point is, appealing to his vanity isn't going to work. If we're going to get anything from him, we've got to work on his creative instincts. Don't put him in a bookstore. Furnish an environment that inspires him. Um, sure, all right. Any suggestions? How should I know? This is your department, not mine. But whatever you do, make it snappy. Entertainment needs something they can take to marketing, and I'm getting swamped with memos call me when you have material. Of course. Where will you be? In my office, reading Shakespeare. Anything to get virtue-violence enough out of my system. He sits at his desk, writing a story. The doorbell rings, a shrill buzz that breaks his train of thought. Muttering beneath his breath, he pushes back his chair and goes downstairs. He's expecting the neighbor kid selling candy for school, or, at worst, a pair of Jehovah's witnesses, but instead two men waiting for him at the front door. One is dressed in a dark gray business suit, the other the blue uniform of an Air Force colonel. Both wear sunglasses. Behind them, a black sedan with government plates is parked in the driveway. The man in the suit flashes an I.D., then tells him that there's been an emergency. A strange object has crashed only a few miles from his house. They show him photos of something that looks like two huge pie pans stuck together, half buried in a hillside. The military believes that it may be an alien spacecraft. Since he's a science fiction writer, he's the closest available person who may be able to make sense of this phenomenon. He agrees to help them, so he shuts the door behind them, then follows them out to the car. He climbs into the back seat. There's no discernible passage of time or distance. One instant he's still at his house. The next, the car has arrived at the crash site. He recognizes this place at once. A nature preserve, where he sometimes takes the dogs for a run. Tanks and field guns have surrounded the hillside, and soldiers are setting up machine guns behind sandbag emplacements. Helicopters carry in more troops, while fighter jets scream overhead. The Air Force colonel escorts him to a forward command post. Within the dugout, a young dude is seated at a folding table." A half-dozen laptop computers have been set up around him, and he seems to be working at them all at once. The kid's head is shaved, he wears a black leather jacket, ripped jeans, and Doc Martens, and there's wires leading from one of the computers to a socket embedded in the base of his skull. His name is Spike, and he's trying to download a virus into the alien ship's computer. He's not having much success, though, because the extraterrestrial A.I. is protected by a cyberspace infrastructure of ultra-dense black ice that has erected a self-evolving synergistic firewall around a high-pitched scream. A soldier runs away from the crash site, his uniform in flames. Behind him, a snake-like appendage has risen from the alien craft. White hot beams of energy lance from it, torching everything in sight. He flees from the dugout just before the Colonel and the hacker are disintegrated by the death beam. Making good his escape by taking cover in the surrounding forest, he stops to look back. The infantry has opened fire upon the spaceship, but their weapons are useless against the invisible energy barrier that surrounds the strange vessel. Then the spacecraft's hatch opens, and half naked warriors riding winged dragons ascend into the sky. Close behind them are a battalion of space barbarians, a gang of post apocalypse bikers on chopped up Harleys, a squad of multiple limbed androids, a pride of Amazonian she devils in chain mail, a horror of flesh eating zombies a blitzkrieg of giant Nazi robots, a mob of scabrous mutants, a herd of cloned dinosaurs, and some guy in a black outfit who has the worst case of emphysema he has ever heard. All of them wielding death, doom, and destruction on an unimaginable scale. All at once something closes in his mind. It feels like a door slamming shut with a sudden and irrevocable surety. In no hurry at all, ignoring the sounds of warfare behind him, he picks his way through the forest until he reaches the road that he knows will lead him back home. Along the way, he encounters a plucky girl reporter from a major metropolitan newspaper. Her car has broken down, so he stops to help her change the flat tire. But when she tells him in breathless tones that she has fallen in love with him, he leaves her behind. Not long after that, he meets a courageous lady scientist from Caltech. Her car has broken down, too, and she insists that she alone holds the key to defeating the aliens. She doesn't fall in love with him but she gives him every indication that she's good for a one-night stand. He gives her his email address and keeps walking. He's almost within sight of his house when he finds a woman in a tattered white dress sitting on his neighbor's stone fence, hugging her knees and weeping with inconsolable grief. She tells him that she's lost her world, her people, her entire future— All she can see is bleakness, cold and dreary, with no hope for anyone. He politely asks if she'd like to come back to his place and have lunch, but all she wants to do is wallow in her misery. And besides, she's a hermaphrodite with three transsexual partners. Sharing a meal with him would violate the social mores of her clan." She wants to explain it all to him, but he's getting hungry, so he leaves her as well and continues walking down the road. At long last, he finds his way back home. He makes a tuna sandwich and pours a glass of milk, and has lunch at the kitchen table while a Martian tripod stomps through the backyard. After skimming the funny pages of the local newspaper, he climbs the stairs to his office. Sitting down in front of his computer, he reads what he'd been writing before he was so rudely interrupted. The story he's been working on, though, has lost its appeal. He gazes out the window for a while, idly watching the alien armada as it slowly descends from the sky. After a while, he closes the file and slides it across the computer screen to the trash can. Then he creates a new document and begins to write something new. What the hell is this? Why do all of our conversations begin the same way? Don't get wise with me. You saw what he wrote. Uh huh, and it's brilliant. Great story, terrific characters, superb setting, a surprise plot twist about halfway through. I didn't see that coming, did you? And a killer ending. Kept me going all the way through. But, damn it, it's not science fiction. So? It's a Western. I'm not sure I'd call it that. It's set in Colorado in 1870, sure, but it's more like a mystery that just happens to take place in. It's got horses, okay? Horses and a sheriff and a female protagonist who works on a cattle ranch. Wasn't she great? And when it turns out that she's actually his stepdaughter, that's not the point. He's a science fiction writer. Where's the aliens? Where's the spaceships? Where's the—you know, I've been thinking much the same thing. It occurs to me that we've been going about this all wrong. I mean, we keep thinking he's a science fiction writer. But maybe he's really a writer who just happens to write science fiction. What are you? Listen, okay? That last simulacrum, everything we could think of we threw at him. Crashed spaceship, alien invasion, military forces, creatures of every shape and size, a choice of female characters, the works. We made it as weird as weird can be, and put him right in the thick of it, with no time for him to think of anything else. So what happens? He rejects it all and writes something completely different. Then program another simulacrum. Make it even more weird than before. Look, I got an idea. Let's say an asteroid is about to collide with Earth, and you don't get it. It's not the idea that matters the most. It's what you do with it. Come again? Look, when everything is weird, then nothing is weird at all. We could have cartoon characters crawl out of his ass and it's not going to make any difference. It'd just be one more strange thing. And this guy made friends with strangeness long before we were born. Maybe he just wants to tell a story and not have anyone tell him what it's supposed to be. But he's supposed to write a science fiction story. And he gave you a western, or rather a mystery novel set in the Old West. Big deal! Entertainment and marketing want him for his imagination, right? So, cut him loose. Let him imagine what he will." and stop trying to force him to do something what you think will sell big. I guarantee that if you take this story to your people, they're going to love it no matter what it is. Yeah, um, well, it is pretty good, I guess. Can I get back to you on this? Gee, I don't know. I've got a meeting in ten minutes. Send me a memo, okay? He sits at his desk, writing a story. Outside the window the first snow of winter is falling, a gentle white haze that masks bare tree limbs and mutes the sullen growl of his neighbor's snowblower. Every now and then he lifts his eyes from the computer screen to savor the view. Autumn is gone, and the days have become short, but he relishes the change of season. A subtle reminder that time is passing swift and there's many more stories to be told before he can take his rest. Returning his attention to the keyboard, he continues to polish the last few lines of the story he's been writing. It won't be long before his wife comes home from work. He needs to go downstairs and start making dinner. Behind him, one of his dogs rises from the carpet. He arches his back, makes a canine yawn, then wanders off to another part of the house. Everyone is hungry. Time to wrap things up for the day. At last he reaches the end of the last paragraph. He sits back in his chair, contemplates what he has done. An interesting little fable, really. Probably won't win any awards and he doubts that the critics will be very kind, but nonetheless he thinks it raises a question or two about the substance of reality, the nature of the human imagination. What if? Never mind. He saves the file and closes it, then stands up from his chair. Feeling as if he's just woken from a dream, he walks away into reality.
3: There you go. Alan, thank you very much for that. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Alan Steele, narrated by my good friend, Mr. Mark Nelson. Mark, thank you very much for that. Links on everything that's been in the show today on the website. Do pop over. Do have a little look. Now, it's again that time where I shout out a plea for flash fiction. There's not many coming. At first, I had a, a few flash fiction sent in, but, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, I've got no writers out there. 700 words can be science fiction, blended with a bit horror, blended with a bit fantasy. You decide. Send it over, starshipsofa at gmail.com. Don't forget to look at the website, starshipsofa.com. So that wraps up now. Another oral Delights. I hope you've enjoyed it. hope it's been okay for you. Again, thank you so much for all those emails regarding the Sad the Show. We will see if fingers crossed the Michael Moorcock video comes out on the feed this week. You never know. <laughs> Until then, I would just like to say good night from me.
0: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A procedure initiated. Shuttle set for watch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one...